Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are in the midst of award season. The Oscars, the Grammys, the Golden Globes. They're all about both content and popularity. But what is the nexus and the separation between the two? To many, if it's popular, it can't be any good. To others, choosing anything other than the top movies or the top 50 songs on Spotify seems useless. What this doesn't tell us is what drives this popularity. Can it be manufactured, or is it the proverbial lightning in the bottle? How real or artificial is popularity? It seems like the perfect time to explore these questions, and we'll do that today with my guest, Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson is the senior editor at The Atlantic, where he writes about economics and the media. He's a regular contributor to NPR's Here and Now and appears frequently on television. It is my pleasure to welcome Derek Thompson here to talk about his new book, Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. Derek Thompson, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things you talk about with respect to popularity is that there's this conflict in some ways between us wanting something new and different, and yet wanting that new and different, wanting those surprises in a format or a framework or a context that is somehow comfortable and familiar, and that that combination often produces really a a key element of popularity. Talk about that first. I think you set it up beautifully. I think that people are torn between neophilia and neophobia. Neophilia. We love new things. We love discovering new songs, seeing new movies, finding new television shows to binge watch. But what do we actually like? Well, we're also neophobic. We don't like things that are too new. We love new songs with familiar chord structures. We love old songs in general. 90% of the time we listen to music, we're listening to a song we've already heard. We love finding new movies, but what are the movies that do best at the box office? Every year, this century, the majority of American films that have been in the top 10 were sequels, adaptations, or reboots. Even in reading political news, I think that many times what people are most hungry for is not an entirely new story and an entirely new medium, but rather they want a new metaphor a new insight, a new joke to explain the biases and the stories that they've already been telling themselves about how the world works. And so across the consumer landscape and music and movies and even media and consumer products, I think that we are precisely in this tension between neophilia and neophobia and that it's the products that fit perfectly in the middle, which I call familiar surprises that have the best shot at becoming hits. Is there something different, though, with respect to sequels, for example, whether it's books or whether it's movies? Because there's also a marketing element there. There's a certain pre-sold quality. It becomes less expensive to market those things that, that movie studios often call tent poles. Yes, oh, that's exactly right. And, of, and throughout the book, I'm constantly trying to balance the psychology of appeal with the economics of distribution. In fact, the seven-word thesis of the book is familiarity beats originality and distribution beats content. And it's the last three words that you hit right on the head right there, which is that, yes, creating familiar surprises is, of course, important. But even more important is, is the story of how a product goes from its creators to the millions 
of people who might ultimately be its consumers and audience. What you've seen in Hollywood is that as it's become more expensive to buy people's attention, the number of movie tickets bought per person has fallen from about 35 in 1950 to about four today. So if you're only going to see four movies a year, what movies are you going to see? Well, you're probably going to want to pick up the story that you last finished. Uh, you're going to want to see the next chapter of the Avengers or see the next chapter of Harry Potter or Fast and Furious. And the movie studios have seen just this, that if they spend 35 or $50 million supporting an original film, that movie will, pro- will reliably do worse than the same amount of marketing money spent on a sequel adaptation or reboot. And this feedback loop of familiarity will tell the movie studios to make more sequels, more, adaptation, more adaptations, and more reboots. And it may, unfortunately, squeeze the market for original uh, storytelling unless it, is, it can be cheaply told for award season. But yes, you're exactly right. You always have to keep in mind both the psychology of appeal and the economics of reach. Talk about it in the context of a particular social order, a particular social time, because it does seem that, that in periods of time when there is more change, when, there, when things are as they are now speeded up in terms of change, when the context is, is one that is more comfortable and slow, there's more willingness to see movies or books or music that is different as opposed to in more conflicted times where the familiar is somehow more comfortable. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I, I do think that there's an economic concept called paradox of choice, uh, which says that sometimes uh, people want to think that having more choice is, is good for them as consumers, but in fact, having too much choice overwhelms them as consumers. What happens when you feel overwhelmed, let's say at work, when you come home uh, after, after a really busy day at work? You order what's sometimes called comfort food, right? You want to have the most familiar food in the world. Maybe it's fried chicken or mashed potatoes or steak. There's comfort food in media as well. And I think that as people are more deluged by choice, they might be defaulting even more to the familiar. Um, What you've seen in both movies and in music is that the hits right now are bigger than ever, that more people are gravitating to the number one book, the number one movie, the number one film. Why would this be happening? Well, in a world of abundant media options, when you face this paradox of choice and you're totally overwhelmed, I don't know what book to get. I don't know what movie to see. One way to orient your search is to bound it by that which is already popular. Don't go online and research 17 different things in 17 different tabs. Just Google a very simple phrase. What's the most popular X? And if you see what the, most pop- the best-selling book is or best-selling movie or, uh, or, or song, then you can start your search there. In fact, there was a study that proved just this. There was a group of sociologists that made a series of music worlds. And on some of these music, in the music worlds each had 48 songs, and different people were sent to each of them to download their favorites. And you could sort of watch the song's popularity uh, uh, vacillate as if through in different universes. What they found, though, is if they put a simple ranking of the currently most popular music on that page, the people were visiting, the biggest hits would get even bigger. Rankings would serve as steroids for hits. And that's what we see today. In a world of abundant options, many of us are limiting our search by that which is purely most popular, and therefore it's becoming 
even, even more popular. And this is the science behind the algorithms that Netflix and Amazon use so effectively. If you're interested in this, then this is what you'll want to see. Yes, exactly. Right there, you're using both popularity and you're using familiarity. But a very interesting thing about popularity that you mentioned at the very beginning of this segment is that popularity is a taste, and people have different appetites for that taste. Some people really like Taylor Swift because she's popular. For other people, Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign that she's dreck, and they look for things to dislike about her because she's past that threshold of popularity. You see this, in fact, very scientifically in the evolution of first name popularity. Uh, first names follow a hype cycle. They become popular, and then they fall from popularity. No one, very few children now are named Edna or <laughs> Ethel, for example. Um, why is this happening, though? Well, sociologists named Stanley Lieberson said that it would make sense that first names would rise and fall in popularity if the vast majority of parents had a medium appetite for popularity as a taste. So if lots of parents like names that are popular but not too popular, then you should expect to see a name like Samantha go from relative obscurity in the 1980s to massive popularity in the early 1990s. But then at that level of popularity, a lot of parents are like, wait, there's already five Samanthas in my older sibling's kindergarten class. I'm not going to name the younger sibling Samantha. And so the name Samantha rapidly declines in popularity. This is exactly what happened. Not only to the name Samantha, but to almost every baby girl's name. So yes, we have a taste for popularity. We like some things because they're popular, but sometimes popularity sends a negative signal. The other part of this is where taste and choice come together. What's resulting is, and, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, is a that plus the long tail of the internet, a much more siloed sense of popularity. As a result, that which is popular is less popular than in an era of mass popularity. Well, it's interesting because I think we're seeing two things that are, are, are conflicting in, in a really interesting way. On the one hand, uh, we now have lots of what people sometimes call filter bubbles. Uh, my Facebook essentially is a global newspaper. Uh, it is a way for tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in the U.S. Uh, to get their news. But it's a newspaper that shows a different front page to every reader. Um, everyone's Facebook news feed looks utterly different, even though it might be their most important source of news. So on the one hand, yes, we are siloed. We are living in our own little bubbles. Um, and that is dispiriting. But at the same time, taste is interestingly transparent now. Deciding, determining what the most popular song was in uh, the 1960s or 1970s was actually a little bit difficult to do, and the Billboard charts uh, couldn't had no technological way to measure what people were actually listening to. But now on Spotify and on iTunes and on other other streaming sites, we can literally see what the most listened to song today is, and people can orient their search for music by just looking at the most downloaded song um, or, or or listened to song. And as a result, sometimes the global cascades, the global hits, can be bigger than ever. Um, you can have Fifty Shades of Grey moments or uh, Pokemon Go moments um, where uh, everybody is 
uh, coalescing around a single cultural product because everybody can see what everybody else is doing. Taste is transparent. So yes, we do live in silos, but very occasionally uh, comes that very special hit that gets everybody's attention and can actually be bigger than ever. And if we work backwards from that, if we try and understand what it is that generates those particular unique hits, what do we begin to understand? One thing we definitely understand is that our concept of virality is a little bit off. Um, most people, a lot of people, when something get, goes big all of a sudden, a video or a song, they'll say, oh, it, it went viral. Um, Virality in epidemiology uh, has a very specific meaning. Uh, virality means that I get sick and I get two people sick, and each of those two people gets two more people sick. And the disease spreads, you might say, sh socially, organically, uh, lots of one-to-one -one and one-to-two moments. But the spread of information online actually doesn't look a whole lot like a disease. It looks a lot more like a broadcast often. Um, for every popular article or video or meme, there's almost always a one to one million or even one to 10 million moment where that video is posted on an enormous Facebook page or it reaches the front page of the Huffington Post or some celebrity tweets it out to 10 million followers. And then somebody later, a little bit further along down the information cascade, might see it passed along by a friend and assume, oh, well, it just spread organically. This is, it spread socially. Um, but no, they, they, what they miss is this dark broadcast, this one-to-one -one million moment that was obscured by the information cascade. And my theory in the book and in this chapter in particular called The Viral Myth, I argue that lots of what's going big online is going big because of these broadcast moments. And if you want your own global cascade, it is not enough to simply make a product that is inherently catchy and contagious. That is not enough. You have to devise a distribution strategy to get it out to as many people as possible. The other part of that, though, that you talk about is piggybacking on to existing networks that are out there. Mm. Yes. And so it's interesting to look at uh, the, the, the growth of, of apps that require lots of people to be on the app before it can go, quote unquote, viral. So a dating app, for example, if, you have, if you're going from zero people on a dating app, how do you make a dating app spread organically? You can't just get five people on it and then ask them to share it with friends. That won't do it. No one will use a dating app with five people. It doesn't make any sense. You have to have 10 you have to have 100 or 1,000 people in that area for the dating app to be useful to anyone. So what Whitney Wolf, the head of marketing at Tinder and the CEO and founder of Bumble, uh, sort of like a Tinder where women control the conversation, what she did is she would go to college campuses and she would go to the most attractive sorority at the college campus and she would say, guys, I'm going to give you gifts, but you all have to get onto this social app all at once, all of you, all at once, all, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60. And then she would go to the best looking fraternity and she would say, guys, open up your phones and look at all these beautiful women that I have on this app. You have to join this app if you're going to meet these women. So then the, she would see in one sort of, in two bowling, um, uh, uh, with two bowling balls, she would knock over 50 pins all at once, right? The best looking sorority, the best looking fraternity. And then she would go to other sororities fraternities in the Greek uh, uh, social network and say, open up your phone and look at the network that's already been created. So is she making this app go viral 
viral when she's doing this? I don't think the word viral has anything to do with this distribution strategy. What she's doing is piggybacking off of existing social networks, just like Facebook digitized the Harvard uh, yearbook, essentially, in order to get its first few hundred users. She essentially digitized an offline network. And I think in many ways you can see this as a strategy for going from, say, you know, 0 to 100 or 0 to 1,000. If you want your, your app, your product, to have that initial audience, find a place where people who would already be the perfect consumers of your product already meet and find a way to hit them all with a single ball. Does all of this require a certain baseline level of quality or innovation or interest in whatever the product might be? Because it's certainly the content still has some relevance to this. Exactly. There, the, the best way to answer this question is to go to music. Uh, there are music testing sites, uh, Hit Predictor and Sound Out, um, which will play a very new song for 100, 1,000 people and ask them to rate it. And they'll say that if it passes a certain threshold, let's say 80 out of from, one, from 0 to 100, if it passes 80, then it's a guaranteed hit if it gets the right amount of exposure if it gets radio airplay, if it gets marketing mic behind it uh, from the label. And what these, sound, what these testing sites have found is that songs that score below 80 simply won't be successful, even with a distribution strategy. But for every 100 songs that score above 80, maybe only four of them will become hits. So what does this story tell us? It tells us that quality is a necessary feature for a hit but is insufficient to guarantee hit status. Above a certain level of songwriting quality, exposure matters more than the inherent catchiness of the song. So yes, the thesis would be, you have to make something that's good enough, but good enough is never enough. You always need the distribution strategy to ensure the product's popularity. If we look at it today, how is, is the hit-making machinery today fundamentally different than it was 25, 30, 45 years ago, and what does that tell us about changes we might see going forward? The most important difference is abundance. The number of books sold worldwide has grown by 7x since 1980. The number of original scripted television shows has grown by 7x since uh, the early 1990s. We are living in a world of abundant media options, and as a result, there are a lot more flops. Um, that is the most important change. How does that affect strategy? Well, one thing that music labels are doing is understanding that Although in the 1900s, uh, radio broadcasts had a kind of monopoly for these one-to-one -one million moments, now they have to find new ways to reach many people all at once. Uh, Interscope, the label uh, that, uh, um, uh, that signed uh, Ray Shremond, a uh, hip-hop uh, band, uh, was looking for a way to distribute the song Black Beatles, um, and they thought it would be perfect for a meme. So what they did is that in addition to an old-fashioned radio strategy, they also went looking for a meme that they could attach the song to. They found it in the Mannequin Challenge meme, uh, made some videos attaching the song Black Beatles to the Mannequin Challenge meme, and essentially got people to associate the meme with the song. They used the meme like a radio station, but rather than orchestrate top-down popularity, they built bottom-up popularity by going first to the social networks. And so this, I think, is one of the more important changes, that in a world of abundance, top-down is going to have less of a power to dictate popularity. We're going to have to come up with some bottom-up strategies as well. 
Derek Thompson, his popular new book is Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Derek, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, this was so fun. Thank you. Thank you.